Welcome to the Kingsway Christian Fellowship Home Service. We hope that you'll be blessed as you listen to this audio sermon streamed live from Melbourne, Australia. Kingsway Christian Fellowship is a family Bible-based non-denominational church preaching Jesus Christ, based in Wonturner. Visit www.kingswaychristianfellowship.com. Now here is Elder Com Doyle. Amen. Praise the Lord. And uh, I hope this morning our technology holds up and that uh, the message comes through clearly. But um, greetings to one and all this morning. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, thank you to our brother Sean and to Sean's family for the praise and worship this morning. Um, let's just pray before we, we uh, open the word this morning. Lord, we ask that you quicken your word unto us all, that you feed the inner man today. Lord, Psalm 23 comes to mind when we think of the, uh, the great shepherd who leads us by still waters and um, causes us to sit down in, and to rest in green pastures. And a picture of, of the pastures uh, just brings to mind nourishment. And Lord, we want good food this morning. We want to be nourished by your word. Lord, Help us, Lord, to make changes today that our lives will line up with your word. And uh, Lord, just um, make it real for all of us this morning, and including most of all myself. And, you know, Lord, we um, are always ever um, prone to the danger of self-deception and hypocrisy. And we don't take these things lightly. So, you know, we want to be um, doers of the word and um, not just hearers. So we commit this this morning unto you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. And the last couple of occasions I've spoken, it's been on the, the, the topic of the Sermon of the Mount, and specifically the opening of that sermon, which is the Beatitudes. And, um, you know, I want to continue in that this morning because it's such a fruitful um, um, passage of, of, of Scripture. And it's quite amazing. And I mentioned previously that the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's just got so much for everyone in there. And it's, of course, a very long passage of red writing of the words of, of Jesus. And, um, you know, probably only comes second to, to, to the later on in Matthew, where we see him speaking on the Mount of Olives. That's a lengthy passage as well, but not as long as the Sermon on the Mount. So we started to look at the Beatitudes. And, um, you know, we looked at poverty of spirit in the opening um, um, sermon. And we learned that that means and uh, talks about being broken and humble enough to realize that we are absolutely helpless and lost, but for the grace of God. You know, and that there's nothing that we can bring to, um, to earn favor or to, merit, or to gain merit um, or in any way to earn our salvation. You know, and we just um, realize that, oh, Lord, I desperately need you, that nothing I can do or nothing. Um, no talent or no ability I have is going to earn my salvation. So we start from that point of, of uh, acknowledging absolute poverty and destitution of spirit and the need for a savior. And, um, you know, we recognize our, our weakness compared to God's greatness. And, you know, out of that, we gain a, a proper spiritual perspective, you know, of who we are and who God is. Then we spoke about um, mourning. And mourning, you know, true repentance 
includes genuine mourning about our sin and its offense before a holy and a righteous God. Godly sorrow, we learned in the work of repentance to salvation, leading unto life. And uh, we spoke of some of the characters in scripture. We learned of David, you know, you know, we, we just spoke about the terrible sins that he was guilty of. But the big difference with David was he knew how to mourn before God. He had a contrite heart. And, you know, God honored David. And, um, and although he was chastised and, had to, uh, chastised and had to suffer correction in his life and, and judgment to, to, in a sense, you know, God was, or David was a man that, you know, was after God's, or God was, I'm not sure how to, how to word it, but you know what I mean? He was a man after God's heart. So he was uh, loved by the Lord. We learned of Solomon, and Solomon lived his life in the fast lane. But later on, he realized, and when we, when we look in the writings of, of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, that he put down a paper there, the importance of mourning. He realized later on in life that it's important to be able to mourn. So mourning, we learned, is part of keeping a tender heart. And um, we also said the last time that a Christian who cannot mourn is in danger of becoming callous and hard-hearted. That's not a condition we want to be in as a Christian. We want to be um, soft-hearted and pliable and um, moldable by God. So we see in these Beatitudes, you know, as we progress through them, that they're the opposite of the world's value system. And, um, you know, we've seen, you know, we spoke the last time how they, they lay out you know, a progression or a set of steps for the believer as he's on that passage of life to God, to his ultimate um, meeting of, of Jesus in that great day when we see him face to face. And, you know, as I mentioned, we could picture them as ascending steps perhaps on that narrow road that leads onto life. So Jesus, of course, is the, the door, the entry. You know, he is the way, the truth, and the life. So you know, Jesus is the way as well, and he's also the ultimate uh, destination. And these steps or these beatitudes, you know, they mark our progress as believers through the, through the Christian walk. So, so far we covered blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn. And today we want to have a look at blessed are the meek. Now, as I mentioned, the sermon opens up with 12 verses known as the beatitudes, so just let's read them again, just to get the context correct and, and just to uh, set the scene. So Matthew 5, verse 1 to 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, 
for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they, the prophets, which were before you. So we see these Beatitudes and, um, you know, they, they, they progress and ultimately they come to persecution. So in a sense, you know, they are definitely the opposite of what the world would see as, as perhaps um, blessings or, or, or good things. But in God's order, they're very, very important. So blessed are the meek is the third beatitude. Now this morning, there's going to be different ideas, both within the church and outside of a church, what actually these mean. So when what comes to your mind or, or the word meek is what it actually means. What comes to your mind this morning when you think about the word meek? What pictures do you get in your mind? You know, is it any of the following? Is it an individual who's too nice? Uh, somebody who's not assertive? Uh, somebody who perhaps is an easy pushover? Somebody who lacks in authority or he's indecisive or he's easily persuaded? He's not perhaps good leadership material, as they may say. Somebody who is maybe introverted or quiet. Somebody perhaps who doesn't get his own way and get, gets exploited or walked on by others. Now, if you were writing your resume this morning, going for a, um, you know, a, a good position, how many of those would you list on your resume? You know, you know we found these biologies that they're paradoxical and, um, you know, which means they're basically, they're, they're absurd or contradictory to what the world would think. So how can it be blessed to be poor? How can we be blessed to mourn or to meek or to hunger and thirst and so on through the Beatitudes? But they're not the only paradoxical statements or thoughts that Jesus has made. You know, just to, to list a couple more. You know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first in Matthew 19, 30. Or it's better to give than to receive in Luke 6, 38. Or the whole thought of dying in order to live. So maybe Jesus is trying to get our attention by presenting truth upside down, as it were, in an enigmatic way. And you know, meekness, it's, it's, it's an opposition to the humanistic views and the philosophies of this world. And now I've got an Oxford Dictionary in work, a real one, a paper one, like the old one, and I had a look at what it said about the meaning of meekness. And the Oxford Dictionary says, pious, piously humble and submissive, submitting tamely to injury, etc. Now, on the face of it, it looks like a reasonable definition, but I don't think this is quite what Jesus has in mind. So what is the meekness that a believer should attain to? Does not Jesus describe himself as meek? In Matthew 11, verse 28, we have these very well-known words. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. So that scripture alone means to me that meekness is not a weakness or not something to be avoided. Because after all, we want to be more like Jesus. And uh, as the scripture says, I need to learn from Jesus. I want meekness because I want rest for my soul. I don't want to, to go about, um, you know, flustered and, and um, frightened by the, the, uh, the issues of this life. You know, as perhaps, as we heard already, many people are in the present situation that we find ourselves in. 
So what is Jesus calling us to do? And what does it actually mean to be meek? So again, we look at that particular verse in the theme scripture, verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So what's Jesus really getting at? Now, is this something I can learn, like a skill or is it a habit I can develop? Or does it come through the Holy Spirit? You know, what does the Bible say about human nature? You know, you know, we just have a think about human nature, you know, and uh, we can all be honest this morning and, and um, you know, look at these particular items I'm going to mention and uh, you know, all of us at some time or another, you know, fall, in, fall into them. So are we, are we not by nature prone to be stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious, proud, arrogant, envious, hard-hearted, selfish, deceitful, bad-tempered, aggressive, sharp-tongued, discontented, to name but a few. You might say, oh, no, not me. But the fact is we, we all fall into those from time to time. You know, when our salvation begins, and, uh, you know, do these and other traits that mysteriously disappear, you know, and why do I say begins? Because I, I, I like to picture salvation uh, as something that, has begun, so we were, and I mentioned this before, you know, we were saved, we're justified, we are being saved, you know, we're being sanctified and we will be saved, we will be glorified. So it is a process, these things don't just disappear the day we commit our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's something that, um, you know, meekness, it comes perhaps through correction and through some other areas which we'll cover this morning. So. Think of a picture. How do they make a soldier ready for service? They have to break him first. And uh, he has to be able to obey without question the instructions and commands of his senior officer or superior officer. And have you ever watched uh, documentaries on the training of elite soldiers and the extremes that they're put through? And they do their utmost to break the candidate. You know, you could perhaps say the same about um, elite athletes and and such like, they also go to, to great extremes. You know, how is a wild horse tamed? And similarly, you know, he has to be broken. What's he like before and after that particular experience? So the thought here is that the meek Christian, he has to be broken before God. You know, meekness, it's, an, it's the evidence that we've been tamed by God. You know, it's the taming of the, the temper, of the self-assertion, of the passions, of the ungodly impulses, etc. You know, all these things that we struggle with as, um, as humans. You know, it's allowing God effectively to work in us to create order out of the chaos of, of, the, um, of the, uh, the fleshly individual. You know, and as long as we fight and resist God in our fallen nature, we cannot have that peace that surpasses all understanding. You know, our lives will be affected and the lives of those around us are going to be affected also. You know, I remember hearing that expression, you know, hurting people hurt others. And it's, it's a very true thing. You know, if we're in disorder and chaos, we're going to affect those around us and our loved ones in most cases, their family. So without meekness, you have inner conflict and it outworks in anger and frustration, bitterness, resentment and disorder. And, you know, these are not desirable things and they're not things we want to, as a witness in our walks to others. 
you know, as we know, you know, I think we said before here, many occasions, the world's very quick to pick on the Christian who falls in those areas. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll make an example of them and, and uh, oppose them. You know, in my preparation, you know, you know I, I like Spurgeon, I, I, I like looking at his material, but I found some writings on Spurgeon which contrast this idea of meekness to the untamed character. And I'll just read here what he said. Grow in meekness and you'll begin, you will gain control over anger. Meekness will moderate your passions. It will subdue your impulsiveness. Meekness will change the way you speak. It will give you control over the harsh word and the sharp put down. Grow in meekness and you will discover the contentment. You will be reconciled to the position you are in. Meekness will help you to accept the difficulties that you face and even to see the hand of God in them. Grow in meekness and you will enjoy peace. Meekness is being used to the hand. Another way to say this is meekness is about submission. And submission means to be put under your mission or sub the mission of someone else. Now, Islam also means submission, but the, the Christian submission is not the same as the is Islamic or the mission submission that Islam means because it's not by direct threat of the sword. It's because we love the Lord. It's something that um, you know, we, 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 uh, we learn and we want to do. So the individual who is meek is committed all of his plans, his hopes and his dreams to the Lord. And um, you know, a favorite scripture of mine is Proverbs 16, verse three, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. So how, um, how does the believer submit and demonstrate meekness? You know, I put a couple of categories here. Perhaps there's more, but one would be submitting to the word of God. And we can look at a few scriptures to, to, um, to build on that. James 1 verse 21. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. So the meek one, he receives the word of God. We can look at 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. And uh, we know the, the background there where Saul was um, instructed via um, Samuel to utterly obliterate the Amalekites. And of course, he didn't, he wasn't obedient. He didn't obey that word that from God through, through um, Samuel. And we know that uh, he, he spared the king and um, he actually blamed the people for taking some of the, uh, the spoils of war, the, you know, the, the animals and, and uh, the riches. And, uh, you know, you'd have to say when we read that verse and reading it says there, and Samuel said, had the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. So Saul demonstrated by his disobedience that he was anything but submissive and meek. James 1.22, just the following verse to the one we just read says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So the meek one not only receives the word of God, but he actually does something about it. He acts, he acts on it. He's not only a hearer, he's a doer. You know, and a person 
I'm sure you, you've come across individuals like this from time to time. You know, a person who's not submitted himself to the word of God, he'll argue about it and he'll disagree with it and um, disagree with what God has to say. And with the objective in order to make it fish his situation, his circumstances, or his desires. You know, if Jesus is the potter and we are the clay, we have to be soft and pliable and moldable. Otherwise, you cannot be used by the master for a service effectively. So it's an important thing. Another aspect is submitting to God's will. Now, we know that uh, anything that is of value to the Lord is going to be tested. You know, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Everything that, be, that can be tested, it will be tested. Now, sometimes we are tested. And when, you know, the Lord comes in, in different ways, and the Lord allows us to be, to be tried in difficult circumstances. By nature, we don't like it because we want to be comfortable. We want to live an easy life. And, uh, but an easy life, it's not necessarily good for us. You know, a good analogy is the need for a plant to be pruned so that it can bear fruit. Sometimes spiritually, we need to be pruned. Now, where I work in Bayswater, there's a fence outside the front um, door of the office. It's probably about five meters long. And there's a vine that's taken, that's grown there over the years. And, you know, it, it really um, takes off and uh, produces a great amount of grapes. Mind you, they're not very nice. I don't like them, but, but I've, I've pruned that thing several times just to, to stop the fence from, from collapsing. And I pruned it severely right down to something perhaps that height, yet it still comes back and grows, um, you know, abundantly. And, you know, you could take that as a picture that sometimes we need to be pruned and, and cut down to, to level in order that good fruit will be produced. Now this trial, it can be in your home life, it could be in your health, it could even be in the church and uh, in many other areas. So the, the trials of life, we all know this morning, they're real and they come in, in many different ways. You know, Pastor Werner's analogy, analogy last week of the lemon and the orange, and I think Sister Ellie used this analogy as well. It's a good one, it comes to mind. You know, the question there is, you know, are you an orange or are you a lemon? You know, the lemon squeezed something uh, tart and bitter comes out. When the orange is squeezed, something sweet comes out. So that picture, you know, you can apply it to ourselves. So when we're tested and trialed, what actually comes out? What do we display? And, um, you know, we want to be, we want to demonstrate the sweetness of the Lord when we're trialed and when we're tested. You know, in these times of trial, perhaps we may feel that God has let us down or he doesn't love us. We might think that we're being punished for our shortcomings. Or perhaps we might even resent others who seem to have an easier time than us. And these are all thoughts that have gone through the, the minds of us all this morning from time to time. We may even feel sorry for ourselves and go about telling everybody about our trials and our tribulations. But what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is that we could stop and think, you know, we count our blessings. We're, we're, we're asked to count our blessings one by one in the song. When you're in times of trial, it might be a good time to stop and think about others in the world who are experiencing persecution and trials that are far, far worse than us. You know, this morning, perhaps as I speak, you know, there's probably brothers and sisters in the other countries, perhaps in 
places like Mozambique and some of these places we're reading about recently where they've been burned out of their, their towns where Christians are being crucified, being, um, you know, mutilated. You know, there's horrific things happening to the brothers and sisters around the world. And uh, you just have to stop, you know, when we think things are bad for us, just uh, what, what is it like for others? There's always somebody worse off than us as the, even the world says that. We could even think at such times of Jesus in Gethsemane. You know, he submitted himself to the will of God in the very ultimate of all trials and paid the greatest price of all. You know, so no matter how bad things get, think of the Lord Jesus or think of those who are going through worse times than we are. So to meet Christian, he's learned to accept the hand of God upon his life and to offer up, up his sufferings. You know, and as a consequence, his faith is going to be built up. We're going to become stronger. We're going to be like that vine that's been pruned and we're going to come back stronger. Another aspect is submitting to, to each other. You know, in Ephesians 5, verse 18 to 21, it says there, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting one, another, one to another in the fear of God. Now, if we're filled with the Spirit this morning, we will submit to one another. And it does go against the flesh, and it can be very, very difficult to do. You know, those first two items I mentioned, submitting to the Word, to the Lord's will, you can't really argue against those when they're, they're, they're pretty clear instructions. But we can give a host of reasons why we, sudden, we shouldn't submit to one to another. And, you know, we may resent other people and, you know, the things that we, we still hold that we shouldn't hold as believers, but we may not necessarily like each brother as much as we like one you know, another or, or we might feel we warm up to someone more than another. But we're still asked to submit to one another. Now, we live in an age where everyone is acutely aware of their rights. You know, and if, you know the, the thought comes to mind here, if we're supposed to be bond servants of Jesus, does it not mean that we may have to also lay down some of our rights and our privileges? You know, if you take it as a conclusion, you know, we don't really have any rights as, as, as Christians in the sense, you know, of, of um, being servants to God. We're really at his disposal, or should be at his, at his disposal. And our privilege is a very topical thing in the world's conversations at the moment. You know, there's all sorts of privilege that's been spoken about and bandied about. But it's a privilege to serve the Lord. And it's a privilege to be submitted to the Lord and in his service. Rather than to be concerned about, you know, what the world sees as privilege, whether it's your whiteness or your you know, your, what you've inherited from previous generations, the wealth that you've inherited, all these things that people, you know, are talking about, rest, making restitution about. So the Christian, he has got a higher calling. And we read in Philippians 2, verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each, let each esteem other better than themselves. You know, if we could do that, life would be very much different. You know, there's a lot of things and attitudes and, and attitudes of heart we have that would uh, disappear. 
And we can't really be meek until we're obedient to that particular scripture. You know, even when you believe right is on your side, and many times it can be within a church situation or outside of the church can be life or work. There's times you may believe that you're, you're, you're right. And you may be convinced that you're right, but you have to listen to what the other side says. You have to listen to what your brother or sister particularly has to say. And you have to consider it carefully and respectfully and give way to your brother and sister. And you listen to what they say. They're your brother and sister in the Lord. And you can't be dismissive or have an arrogant attitude. You have to listen. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's something that uh, we can all, I guess, be corrected in from time to time. You know, there's so much infighting in the church. And it's a sad thing to say, you know, among Christians, there's enough infighting outside in the world. We see that day to day. But it's a sad thing that Christians often dispute one another and fall out over perhaps non-critical. I can understand standing up for the word of God is important and, and um, making a clear stand on, on matters that are essential to salvation and, and on core doctrine. But um, falling out over non-critical matters, you know, you'd have to question how prevalent and how how much meekness is really in the church of today. And, it, you know, and it's, it's something to be concerned about. We should be meek and we should uh, see meekness displayed in brothers and sisters. You know, people are going to oppose us. And uh, we could just think of um, some different characters in scripture just to, to, uh, to demonstrate that. You know, we think of Moses. How did Moses, how did he handle opposition? You know, did he lash out or did he pray for a stiff, stiff-necked people? You know, people are going to provoke us. You know, just think of Jesus. Did they not taunt and provoke Jesus during his trial? And what was his reaction? You know, if we look at Matthew 27, verse 27 to 29, we read there, and then the soldiers, soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. But he never lashed out or he never defended himself. You know, people are going to disappoint you. I'm sure that a pastor is disappointed when only a few turn up to attend the prayer meeting. Or only a few attend for a visiting speaker. How would you feel if your brothers or sisters in the Lord disowned or betrayed you? You know, these things are realities. You know, not everybody, even, you know, the, a good believer is necessarily going to be able to stand up to persecution. Maybe they have a different breaking point to me or you. And I hope and I pray that if I'm tested in, in such a manner one day that I can stand up for the, the Lord. But none of us really know until we're actually confronted with that particular situation. You know, they are reality. So pe- people will do things. And, uh, you know, you read many accounts of where Christians have, you know, unfortunately betrayed one another. But what's, what's the response? Do you hate such a person? Do you curse them? Or do you pray for them? Of course, we, pr- we should pray for them. People can injure you physically. Or they can injure you, injure you through lies and gossip. How do you repay those people? Now, in summary, the response to all of the above would be that meekness in us, we see it by bearing up to one another and, you know, taking wounds and suffering, you know, and by not returning 
evil, or not by returning evil for evil, but by returning good for evil. Uh, we read, of course, in a well-known proverb, 25, 21 to 22, if thy enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. If he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For you shall heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Now, I've often wondered what actually that means about heaping up coals of fire upon a person's head. So I did a little bit of reading about it for this morning. And what it seems to indicate is that it, um, it, it represents actually causing the person to examine themselves or to feel shame. It's as if embarrassment or that hotness that comes with embarrassment or, or shame, that redness would flare up in them. And the fires on the head represent that. And the idea is that when you actually bless another individual that's done evil to you, that by doing that, that you will perhaps cause conviction to come on that person. It's easier to lash back and to you know respond, you know, in a um, in a harsh manner. But um, often the soft response will have a better result. I'll give you an illustration. This is an illustration that I, I just looked up. I don't know this particular individual, but it just paints a picture of what I'm talking about here. Now, there's a gentleman called Stuart Holden, um, and he lived from 1874 to 1934, and he's a, a Christian author. And he describes a time when he was in Egypt, and he met a sergeant of the Highland Regiment. And this particular sergeant was a saved man. He was a Christian. And he asked the sergeant, how were you brought to Christ? And um, the sergeant responded in this manner. He said, he gave this account, that there was a private in the same company as myself who had been converted in Malta, and I gave him a terrible time. I remember one night in particular when it was very rainy and he came in wet and weary from sentry duty. Yet, as usual, he still got down on his knees before going to bed. My boots were covered in mud and I threw them both at him and hit him twice on the head. He kept kneeling and praying. The next morning when I woke up, I found my boots beautifully cleaned and polished at my bedside. This was his reply to me and it broke my heart. That day I was brought to repentance. And another example, I don't know if anybody's watched the uh, Voice of the Martyrs film about Richard Wormbrand called tortured for Christ and it's a very very moving film and in it we see some of the brutality that Richard Wormbrand went through and you know just constant beatings and and persecution and you know the other fellow Christian prisoners and particularly pastors who were in that prison with him but there was one particular in, you know thing that that um, would happen that you know pastors like Richard or, or Christians who were caught saying their evening prayers. So the last thing at night before they went to sleep, the cruel prison ward would come around and he'd lift the flap on the, the door and look in. And if you were caught praying, you'd be taken out and given a severe beating. So one night, of course, Richard, he was faithful in prayer and he was praying and um, the warder came in and uh, he asked him, he said, what are you praying about? And the response was, I was praying for you. So we just see that uh, whole thought then of returning good for evil. It's a powerful, powerful thing. So where do we see examples of meekness in scripture? You know, there's so much in scripture concerning meekness. And, um, you know, this is not just something 
that Jesus introduces in the Beatitudes in that verse we're looking at today, but it runs right through the Old Testament. In fact, that particular verse we're looking at concerning the meek is taken from the Psalms, and we'll look at that shortly. But just consider the following characters. You know, if you've read the book of Job, and I've read it several times, it's a, again, it's a, it's a very, very moving book. We see with Job, you know, that so much happens, Job, you know, at the permission of the Lord that Satan was let, let do so much in his life. And we see how he went through and how he reacted. You know, we see his wife asking him to, to curse God and die. We see those individuals, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu present their particular advice and, and, um, and uh, commentary, you know, most of it negative to Job. But how did he react? You know, he, he truly was a meek man. He, he, never, um, he never lashed out and, you know, he, he accepted actually his lot. You know, he said, you know, those famous um, words, naked I came into the world, naked I will go out, blessed be the name of the Lord. We get those from Job. We could look at Abraham in Genesis 13. You know, the land we read in that passage would not support all the herds of Lot and, and Abraham's um, families and their, the, their colleagues. You know, and a great dispute arose. And Abraham, he gives Lot the first and the best pick of the land. So it's, it's the thought that comes to me there is it's not easy to give preference to one another when it costs you. And quite often there is a cost involved. You also see Abraham interceding for for Sodom, you know the the um, the most vile of sin and terrible goings on was was taking place in Sodom. Yet Abraham has a heart to intercede. We can look at Jacob. You know, another Jacob in his earlier life, or as he was called Jacob, you know, he was a deceiver and a manipulator. You, know, you just have to look at his dealings with Esau, his brother, and with Laban, and you know, we just get a picture of what he was actually like. But the time comes, however, in, in Genesis 32, you know, verse 24, we see the account of that encounter he had with the angel. And, you know, he goes through a night of, of struggle and he's broken. And he, he comes out of that night with a new name, Israel, and a different character from the old Jacob. And he was left with a permanent limp because as the socket, the scripture tells us, of his, his hip, it went out of place. He was touched on the hip. You know, and sometimes as you'll see in a brother, you know, the outward evidence that they've been broken. And, you know, particularly if you know somebody, somebody's life before they encounter the Lord and see that person changed after, you can see those, those marks. But you know, quite often there's evidence of, um, you know, being touched by God in that manner. Joseph, well, we know about Joseph. Joseph, you know, after the way Joseph was treated, and he was treated horrendously, you know, he had every right to take his revenge on his brothers, but he showed meekness. And we read in Genesis 50, verse 20, you know, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day and to save much people alive. So when you have power and when you have strength at your disposal and you don't use it, that is an aspect of meekness. It's that, that ability to restrain yourself, even though you can't actually you know, do a lot of damage. Moses, you know, you look at Moses. Well, what about Moses? Moses committed the premeditated murder of an Egyptian. Yet the Lord tamed him over a period of 40 years in Midian. You know, in Numbers 12.3, we see that instance where 
Miriam and Aaron, they speak out against Moses over the um, marriage to the Ethiopian woman. And, you know, they question, you know, his authority and you know, how God could speak through others and not just Moses. And, um, you know, when we read, we see the words here that now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were on the face of the earth. Now, this man, Moses, who was meek, we, we hear that he was not a good speaker. Yet he confronted Pharaoh, probably the most powerful man in the world at that time. And he also confronted his brother Aaron, and he broke the tablets given to him on the mount in reaction to the uh, idolatry and the evil and all that was going on around, around the golden calf and the great sin of the people at that time. Yet again, we read that same man, Moses, intercedes for those who have committed such a great sin and who have so much obsession. Again, it's meekness. And then we could go into the New Testament, you know, and we can look at some of the characters of the New Testament. And one very obvious character is Peter. Uh, Peter had a very hard lesson in meekness. Peter had a very inflated view of himself, so much so that he dared to rebuke Jesus. Now, I spoke back in January about the, a topic about who, who is Jesus, and uh, much of it centered around the, um, the goings-on and what was happening at Caesarea Philippi, and particularly the revelation that Peter had there about who Jesus really was. You know, and uh, you, know, you were the very... You are the Christ, you are the Son of God. Yet, when we go down a couple of verses after that, that wonderful revelation, Peter confronts Jesus about Jesus' prophetic words, you know, about his up-and-coming death in Jerusalem. And Jesus tells Peter in no uncertain terms to get behind him, that he was a stumbling block and that he was prompted by Satan. So Jesus really knew the heart of man. He knew what man was really like. He knows what me and you are like this morning. And he knew what Peter was like. He knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. You know, and we see when we go further into Peter, the account of Peter, we see that that particular occasion when they were disputing among themselves, the, 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 the disciples about who was the greatest and uh, what the rewards would be in heaven. You know, and Jesus, you know, says to, to uh, Peter that Satan had demanded or requested from him permission to sift him like wheat. You know, and Jesus said something interesting. He says that after that, he wanted Peter's fate to hold, to hold up and he wanted them to return and to strengthen his brothers. So this sifting is a process to separate the chaff from the wheat. And we should bear that in mind this morning that when we're trialed and tested, that that's the, perhaps one of the reasons behind it all is to separate the chaff and the wheat and to, uh, to bring what's important out in our walk. You know, of course, Peter... And we, we remember he says that he was ready to die and to go to prison for Jesus. But he ends up den denying Jesus three times. You know, his, his very aggressive nature is displayed in the night of the arrest of Jesus when he severs the year of Malchus. And, um, you know, you see all those aspects of Peter's character. And then we find later on when he hears the, the cock crow for the, the third time, how in the scripture says he wept bitterly, remembering the words of Jesus. So before he was the rock that we know Peter as, he had to be broken. You know, of course, then we have Jesus. Jesus restores Peter in a beautiful way. And we were all familiar with that passage, you know, the Sea of Galilee in John 21, verses 15 to 17. You know, and then later on, we, we, we see, you know, that Peter was, was martyred. And tradition tells us that this former, former headstrong, aggressive, 
overbearing man wanted to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. We could look at Paul. You know, Paul was a religious fanatic who terrorized the early church. Paul was broken in an instant when he met the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. And you can stop and think there, you know, for some, it's instantaneous. It takes an instant. For others, it can take 40 years. It can take a lifetime. You know, perhaps all of us this morning, we're progressing somewhere along that path. And the Lord, you know, is still working in our lives and, and uh, changing us and using situations and circumstances to make us into the, the way he wants us to be. And of course, then we come to Jesus. You know, concerning Jesus, what can we say about the meekness of Jesus? Well, first of all, the scriptures tell us that he emptied himself and he emptied himself in, in, in different ways. You know, he, he voluntarily accepted the limitations of being a human being. And that's, that's a great mystery how, you know, divinity can, can actually become and live in flesh. You know, he, he did that. He hid his glory from those around, around him. He didn't display the power he could, could have displayed. And he gave up the use of the attributes. We know the attributes of Jesus, that he's all-knowing, all-powerful. Yeah, and um, he could have been present everywhere. Yet he limited himself to one place at one time. You know, he could have defended himself easily, but he came, as Sean mentioned earlier on, as a suffering servant. You know, they could have called, I think the scripture says, 12 legions of angels to assist him. But instead, he willingly sacrificed himself and he submitted himself to the Father. So Jesus is the ultimate picture and model of meekness. Now, as in all of the other uh, Beatitudes we've looked at, they start with a statement and they end with a, you know, a, a, a promise or, or a, an outworking. So this particular one we're looking at this morning, the outworking of the promise is they shall inherit the earth. You know, Jesus actually takes these words that I mentioned earlier off in the Psalms, but it's from Psalm 37. And if we, we just read the first 11 verses of Psalm 37 this morning, we can learn quite a lot about meekness. So let, let's read that together, just starting in verse 1. And it says there, Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. They could pause there, and the thought that comes to mind is, you know, the world is walking in one direction. But we as Christians, we should be saying, up, walking in the opposite direction. And, um, you know, it could be like that, that picture of the horse with the blinkers on, the workhorse or the, even the racehorse. The blinkers are on so that there's no distraction from the world of what's going on around him. And his course is set and he's going straight forward. So we as believers, we should be going in the direction of God. And, you know, the scripture tells us elsewhere, not veering to the left or to the right. Verse 2, it says, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. You know, that's like in Psalm 73, where Asaph sees the destiny of the wicked. You know, lots of things are going on around us. You know, but lots of things perhaps that stir us up or they may, might even make us envious or desirous of what others have. But for those who don't have the Lord, the destiny is still the same. No matter how rich or how well healed they are or how popular they are, how they seem, if they don't have Jesus, effectively they have nothing because this world is passing and 
everything here is going to be burnt up anyway. In verse 3, it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. Thought to me there is that God will look after us. Commit thy ways unto the Lord, and trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light, and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospered in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not thyself in any ways, any wise, wise to do evil. I can stop there and think, isn't that not brokenness and taming of the old man, that we don't resort to anger and wrath? What does the scripture say about um, uncontrolled outbursts of wrath? That it's it's rebelliousness and it's, it's as witchcraft. So they're not something that we want in our Christian walk. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yea, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. And then we have the scripture that, that Jesus says here in, in, in Matthew Verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. You know, we have an inheritance now. You know, and as I said, we might feel sorry for ourselves and time to time and think that things are going bad. But our inheritance, it's, it's peace and it's assurance. It's an assurance in our salvation. It's an assurance that we know what's coming. The world doesn't have that. The world is going around at the moment, fearful, as our brother Gary says, and... Uh, there are many cases they're tormented and, and um, you know, mentally disturbed in many cases and you know, terrible things are happening because of, of the goings on. But we're not like that. We have a peace now. We know now in this life um, that, um, you know, we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. We have God's word and we have a spirit and uh, we have what we need to overcome all that this world can throw on our way this morning. And of course, then we have, there's a future sense of that as well, in that we will inherit a new heaven and a new earth. We are, we're joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. So just some conclusions and thoughts this morning. You know, you could write an awful lot more on the topic of me, because it's a very, very big topic. You know, the true believer this morning, he goes through these steps and these beatitudes, but he can't skip meekness and he can't progress on in, the, in these beatitudes, you have to to um, attain each one, you know. And if you don't, you try to hang on to that old man, and you try to, you know, keep those things that don't, you know, uh, display or define meekness. You're going to find that the Lord's going to orchestrate situations of circumstances that are going to bring you back to the first two. So you come back to the point where you have to be broken in spirit and, and in poverty again. And to the point where you have to mourn about your lacking and about your your shortcomings and realize, well, you know, there's things I need to change. I need the Lord to change in me before I can keep going on in this walk. You know, meekness involves putting the the um, self-image to death. You know, whether this morning we are vain or whether we esteem, you know, or whether we, you know, whether we esteem ourselves as something special or whether we think you know we're we're nothing, or we have we're lacking in self comment or self you know confidence, 
or self-image. If you look at both those statements, the word self is contained in both. And that's the problem. The problem is that naturally all of us are rooted. We have rooted in us an obsession with ourselves. And it's the self that's got to be put to death. It's, it's the self that was dealt with at the cross. And that's why we have to crucify the flesh daily. And, um, you know, while we're still in this physical body, we have to deal with it. So, so self, self is an enemy to the, the work of God in our lives and to the Beatitudes. So we have to overcome self. You know, when we're broken and meek, the self, it doesn't get offended. You know, we don't, um, we don't, there's no necessity to have retribution or to defend ourselves or to, you know, to see our, our case or our particular situation or our view put right and, and um, vindicated in front of the world. You know, if, if we're um, meek in that sense, we can, we can wear a lot. We can accept a lot of things and a lot of challenges and a lot of trials and just turn them over to the Lord. And that in itself, you know, it's not weakness. It's, it's a great witness to those around us. You know, being meek and being level-headed and being, you know, all these different attributes that go, go with meekness are actually something that will affect, and then, as we, said, we learned this morning, bring conviction perhaps on those who um, are in, in behavior walking in an opposite way. You know, we know, we, we acknowledge there's a battle that goes on between the spirit and the flesh. And, you know, we have to keep walking with the Lord. We have to, to overcome the flesh and uh, deal with the flesh. You know, perhaps, you know, a good definition is that the meekness that we're to display, it's, it's the strength that's in us, but it's, under, it's the strength under the, under the control of God. So the abilities we have and the strength we have and the, the um, tendencies we have to, to do things which are not pleasing, if they're submitted under God or under the control of God, then they can be a blessing. Now, I'll just quote Tozer. I'll close this morning with a couple of more examples just to, um, to uh, paint a picture again. Tozer, another, another um, man who made a commentary about meekness, which is quite a good one and which will help get reinforced this morning. He says, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He's accepted God's estimate of his own life. You know, we could pause there and say, you know, we're nothing really special. That's the whole thing. You know, our estimate of ourselves is very different to God's estimate of who we are. And we just have to look at Peter to see that. He knows he's as a, a weak and helpless as God declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more important than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. Here's another illustration which I just um, extracted, which will just help this morning again to, to uh, demonstrate a meek individual. It reads, I remember hearing about a well-known preacher that was walking with his son. A man approached him and started talking to the preacher. At one point, the man asked the preacher, his opinion of another man that had been a great, at great odds with him. The preacher said something along the lines of, I think that he's a good man. Not long after the man went on his way, once the father and the son were alone again, the son looked up at his dad and said, I thought that man hated you and couldn't stand you. Why were you so complimentary toward him? And, and you were asked, 
what you, when you were asked what you thought of him, to which the preacher said, because son, I wasn't asked what his opinion was of me, but my opinion was of him. And the application there is what a great example of meekness. Many people think that meekness is weakness, but it couldn't be further from what the word means. Meekness is controlled strength. A horse hasn't lost its strength when it gets harnessed. It has gained usefulness and not lost one ounce of strength. When we choose to direct our power to be constructive rather than destructive, that does not display weakness, but meekness. Controlled strength. Did not Solomon say in Proverbs 16, verse 32, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. Let's close this morning in prayer and, and we'll and dwell on those words through the day. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. It is nourishment to our inner man. And Lord, maybe not just hear it, but act on it today. And Lord, I just want to, um, to uh, just call your blessing on the people this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Lord bless you one and all this morning. Amen.